This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Today's guest is Dr. Azim Sharif, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair at the University of British Columbia. He is the lead author of the recently published article, The Privacy Mismatch, Evolved Intuition in a Digital World. It's great to talk with you, Azim. Oh, it's great to be here, Robin. And I want to say that this is such a great idea for a podcast, so I'm glad you're doing it. Thanks very much. Uh, privacy seems like an increasingly prominent issue in our modern lives because bigger and bigger parts of our lives are digital now. We're not only worried about nosy neighbors looking over our hedges, what you call physical privacy, but we're also worried about every citizen of the web having access to our personal information, what you are calling informational privacy. Can you describe some of the different aspects or dimensions of privacy? Yeah, so the privacy, uh, the privacy issue has been talked about outside of psychology for, for quite a long time. A lot of this research is, a lot of it's happening in law journals and philosophy, sociology, and, and now increasingly in computer science. And all of the different dimensions are centered around this balance between seclusion and interaction, right? Trying to figure out this optimal zone where you don't give too much information, you don't share too much information, you don't put too much out there, but you do enough so that you can get what you want from other people. And so it's regulating the boundaries between self and other. Uh, that can happen in the physical space, but now, as you mentioned, it's increasingly happening in the informational space and in the digital realm. And a lot of the cues that we previously used in the physical space get, get befuddled in, in the internet realm. How much, in fact, do people say they are concerned with privacy? And does what they say jibe with their actual behaviors in terms of exposing or revealing their information? Yeah, so a lot of the psychological research that's been done uh, on privacy over the last about 15 years, although it's not been appearing in psychological journals, uh, has been uh, around this, this idea of the privacy paradox, which is this sort of discontinuity between those two ideas, how, what, how much people say they care, and then the behaviors that they actually engage in. Uh, this kind of discontinuity is something that's very familiar, of course, to psychologists. Um, it, it is striking in the context of privacy, um, probably in a way that people recognize in their own behavior. So there was a, a Pew poll that came out in uh, a couple of years ago that said that 81% of people, Americans, uh, say that the costs of the privacy that they seem to be sacrificing to internet companies isn't worth the benefits that they're getting. So they're actually putting it in the context of all the returns that they seem to be getting from the Gmails and Amazons and Facebooks and Instagrams uh, of the internet. And they're saying, that's not worth it when I think about it abstractly. But of course, if you look at people's behavior, you have billions of people who use these services every day. Uh, so it seems like you have this discontinuity. And this is what's, what's the paradox. People say they care but their behavior speaks otherwise. In terms of this privacy paradox, 
Uh, could this discrepancy between what people do and what people say about their privacy be due to sort of in the heat of the moment decisions? Um, so in the long term, we value our privacy, but right now we wanna access this cool new feature on Facebook, which requires sacrificing some of our privacy uh, in, in favor of what you were calling interaction before. So could that be all that's going on maybe? I don't, I, I think that's something that's going on. I don't think it's all that's going on. So certainly there's this discounting aspect, this future discounting aspect. Um, our argument, and, and I should credit my co-authors here as well, uh, uh, Will Jettingoff, who's a graduate student of mine and Joe Green, um, a shared co uh, first author on this uh, paper who's an incoming postdoc, um, they really are the ones who kind of pushed me into the, the privacy research. And in particular, this idea of, of the evolutionary mismatch uh, that we have between privacy, that the cues that we would use to, uh, that we would be able to reflexively use, um, using our sort of evolved instincts as to how much uh, information to share and with whom, those all make sense. We do that very easily in, in, in the, the uh, offline world. Um, but they get confused when we do them online. And, and I can give you an example of this because you could, you could have a situation where somebody on the street asks you for the same type of information that you routinely give up on the internet. And you'd have the same discounting situation. You could say, well, you know what, the thing that they're giving me on the street right now is very valuable to me and what they might do with my information later, maybe it doesn't matter as much. It's something in the future. I want this thing right now, but you wouldn't do it. If there's somebody face-to-face -face asking you for your email address, your phone number, your credit card number, your, your, your uh, uh, shirtless pictures or whatever, these are things that you wouldn't just give if it's somebody right in front of you, but people routinely give when it's online. There's this large mismatch that you've identified between uh, the self protection behaviors that our human ancestors presumably evolved and our current modern environment. Can you describe more the nature of this mismatch between what human psychology evolved to do over tens of thousands of years and what modern situations, perhaps online, require of us? Yeah, so you can think about all these reflexive um, strategies we use to, to, again, regulate that boundary between self and other. So if you're having a conversation with somebody else uh, in, in the offline world um, and you see other people around you, you know how to regulate your voice so that, say, only the people that you want to be able to hear you can hear you. Uh, so if there's, if you're talking about something sensitive, you know, to lower your voice if there's people closer. If the people seem like they're eavesdropping, if there are people that are enemies, if they seem to have ill intent, uh, if they're hard of hearing, you, you kind of flexibly use all these cues in your environment to determine how, how much you're going to share, how, how um, loud you're going to speak, all these, all these types of, of tricks. When you move online, really with, with the, the, the invention of any sort of superhuman technology, uh, we, we now have to readjust. We can't use our, our, our well-established theory of mind about what another human would be able to hear at what distance anymore. So I was thinking, um, you remember in, in 2001, A Space Odyssey with Hal, 
Um, and I, I don't know if you, you remember the movie, but they, they're talking about disconnecting Hal and they don't want Hal to be able to hear. And so they go in you know, the pod and there's the, the air locked door. And so certainly Hal won't be able to hear us here, but you forget that Hal is a superhuman technology and can read the lips in a way that a human can't. You, that's not something which comes obviously to people. Um, and even with Hal, Hal was made out to be somewhat anthropomorphic. It looked like a big eye. Whereas the things which listen to us now, there's, there's smart speakers in my house that are listening to us right now. I don't know how much they can hear. I don't have a clear theory of mind as to what, what, um, what their capabilities are relative to my own capabilities. And certainly when we're on the internet, all of that just falls apart. It goes to hell. We, 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 it's hard for us to intuit how many people can be seeing the information that we're posting, all that. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, great example. So, so given this evolutionary mismatch that you're describing, are there any proposals that you find promising for bringing into better alignment what we say and what we do about privacy? So what would an evolutionarily informed perspective recommend for helping us manage our privacy better? Yeah, so I think that the easier question, I'll get to that question in a second, the easier okay. question is the question of what not to do, uh, what won't work. Um, because I think a lot of the strategies that people are trying to employ now, once you think about a little bit of psychology, you recognize are untenable. Um, so relying on individuals to regulate their behavior, even if you give them, you know, the, the, the law, like, you know, every website that you go to, accept your cookies, do you want to modify all your cookies, do you want to modify your privacy settings, here's exactly, here are the eight pages of privacy uh, legalese that you, you should understand before you go to this website, relying on people, individuals to sort all that information out for every website and every vector of potential privacy invasion, it's completely unrealistic. There was a paper in 2008 by um, Alicia McDonald and Lori Craner that was that, that quantified how much time would be required for people to read all of the privacy in terms of service statements that, that people would come across on websites. And that was in 2008, so that's 13 years ago. They said it would take, uh, what was it? It was something like, I think 12 full days a year uh, without sleep uh, to read all that information. And if you added it all up in, in the United States, it would be every year 6 million a person year's worth of time, uh, which translates to something like $800 billion worth of time spent just reading these privacy things. And so people obviously don't do that. Um, even the best um, of the best intended, uh, 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 the GRPD um, uh, European regulations that required us to now assess all the cookies, expecting people to be able to use their limited cognitive resources to do this, it's, it's unrealistic. Um, it also adds a secondary problem, which is that a lot of companies and governments that are trying to get as much information as possible while, while maintaining a reasonably good reputation with their um, uh, users or citizens, uh, they can placate the, and this is a point we make in the paper, they can placate the uh, intuitive feeling we have about whether our privacy is being violated. Um, they can appeal to just the uh, uh, how bad we're feeling about our privacy being violated um, 
and make it seem like things are okay while leaving the actual abstract costs, the ones that we would really have to think about, the ones that don't come with that sort of obviously visceral impact, but the ones that only are understood when we think abstractly, they can leave those untouched because they can, they can kind of sate our immediate concerns with the, um, with the, the sort of cosmetic changes. Um, so I think all those, all those changes are unlikely to be effective. So what can be effective? In, in the article, we mentioned that one way to kind of gin up people's visceral concern, they're, they're kind of not, not the abstract, cold, rational concern, but the kind of concern that's actually likely to motivate their behavior is you could use uh, moral piggybacking. You could piggyback on something which is actually very uh, morally impactful, emotionally impactful in the moment. And there was a paper, there's an um, open letter in, um, in December of last year by the, every player on the Boston Celtics uh, roster, they wrote to the governor about facial recognition software that was being used by the police. And they said, facial recognition software is a racial issue because it tends to disproportionately fail when, uh, when uh, recognizing African-American faces. And so there you're linking uh, what is a, a sort of morally not evoke, uh, or an emotionally not evocative issue, this, this abstract privacy concern with something which is very emotionally evocative, especially in 2020. Um, so that's one strategy that we suggested. There's another approach, and, and this, this was put, there was a really good metaphor by um, the privacy researcher Alessandro Acquisiti. He said that, um, it, think about the, the initial development of automobiles. Initially, they went very slowly, and they went slow enough that our reaction times were capable of kind of, avoid, though there of course were a lot of accidents early on, but they went slowly enough that you, know, you, could, you could know what's happening very in, in, in the moment, but then their acceleration increased, their speed increased to the point where it's very, very difficult for human reaction times, which of course didn't keep pace with the technological change, to be able to react sufficiently when these things are, are barreling down the street. And so what did we do? We didn't just expect people to kind of ramp up their physiological abilities, that would be unreasonable. Uh, we instituted through policies, pressure for technological developments, which kind of countered uh, the, the new technological issues that were being faced. So you have ABS brakes and you have uh, more um, safe crumple zoned cars and everything. And so the idea is that there, there are technologies that are emerging, cryptographic technologies that are emerging, which could be used if there was the policy intent um, to protect our privacy online. You point out that we have built in, thanks to evolution, um, strong feelings about ownership and possessiveness about uh, some objects. And so I'm just wondering about the plausibility of, of treating our precious data as if they were things that were owned by us. So could there be a little GIF animation whenever Cambridge Analytica steals uh, our possessions, namely our personal details, which could be glowing chests of precious demographics, sexual preference, political belief information. Yeah, right. So what you could have is um, uh, something on any any dating website. You could have just, you know, your uh, pictures of your mother and father kind of watching who you're swiping on. And, and maybe that would uh, compel the effect. Uh, the effect that your, your choices are being monitored here. Um, those types of things, I think, I mean, they're, they're, they're 
acute ideas which which might work, but I can't see them working at scale, of course, right? Which is why I think that we can't rely on trying to make the internet a a, a tool that resembles the offline world. It has sort of those anthropomorphic tendencies to, to kind of recapitulate uh, the the the, the outside world in a way which properly triggers our, our, our evolved instincts. Instead, I think that maybe it's a, a policy level or technological solution, which is actually going to get us where we abstractly think we need to be. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree with you, uh, particularly with respect to solutions that scale. Uh, I resonated with what you were saying before about EULAs, these end user licensing agreements that everybody ignores to get to use the cool new app that they want to use. Um, I'm wondering if there could be some sort of um, random lottery where you become a jury member <laughs> where you actually have to read a eula and if you find it objectionable then 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 other people are not going to have access to the app and they so like somehow like we have a jury system for for court cases and rather than having everybody in the country having to determine the guilt or the innocence of this person we say here's a representative group of of 12 people so i'm wondering if something could be done like that so that you would be randomly assigned sometimes to read these eulas really read them and then what you feel about them is going to apply to other people that's a really interesting idea. You know, there's this one study um, where gave people, they had people sign up for a hypothetical social networking site or something. I think Jonathan o, uh, Obar was the author. And um, they had people go through a whole procedure you would if you're signing up for something like Facebook or Twitter. And uh, they looked at how many people actually would read the, the privacy policy in the terms of service. Um, uh, how many people said they did it, how many people actually did it, how much time they spent. And then what they did is they embedded these gotcha clauses. I mean, we use these in, in, in our psychology surveys, but they embedded these gotcha surveys which said, oh, obviously all of your information will be shared with the NSA. And also, by the way, you're getting your firstborn to, uh, to the site. Uh, and 2% of people caught those, 98% of people missed them. So, so these were great. great. To the firstborns of 98% of the participants. Uh, uh, the, the issue I see with, it's a very clever idea to have like a, a, a jury duty, you're on, you're on policy duty. Um, in, those, in the jury situation, you have, uh, you have competing lawyers who are explaining the legalese to you. Uh, you might need something like that as well, because as you know, seeing these, these, these are sort of impenetrable documents. And I don't know whether uh, the, the, uh, an average citizen who doesn't have training at a law school or um, uh, in, in some sort of contract law or something is going to be able to really have a good sense of whether uh, this is a reasonable um, uh, uh, contract or not. Um, so you might have to have a, a, a prosecuting and a defending lawyer kind of going at it over the contract and then you reach some sort of equilibrium that people are, are happy with. It seems, seems a bit cumbersome, but maybe it's necessary. That's all the time we have for our conversation with Azim Sharif. Thank you very much, Azim, for opening up this discussion about privacy. Thanks, Rob. Thank you for having me.